Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. I wanted to welcome you all and thank you for your time. I know that this is either morning or early afternoon or late afternoon for you um, on a Friday, but nonetheless, we really appreciate your time at the end of your work week. Just to get us started, this is a WCAPS launch of a subgroup. So WCAPS is Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, and the subgroup is the Climate Change and International Development one. So for those of you who may not be familiar, and for those of you who are, we'll kind of reacquaint you. But WCAPS is, is this group that believes these global issues demand different perspectives. And frequently it is women and especially women of color who are at the intersection of these issues. They're be either being impacted more greatly by these issues or kind of the interventions sit with women, people of color, indigenous peoples. And yet they're the people who are not at the table. So WCAPS is really here to provide this platform and this network for women to come together to talk about these issues and to be actually, you know, seen as experts in these issues. So amongst in, in WCAPS, there are different working groups. The climate change is obviously a very robust one. We have at least one that I see of leads on that, uh, Dr. Kapila. Within that, we realized, right, is that, yeah, and she's waving. <laughs> Fantastic. Within that, we realized that climate change is so incredibly broad. And if you hold the view that I do personally, it really should be at the intersection of everything else. The way you see women and especially women of color at the intersection of everything else. So within the climate change group, we have subgroups. And Lisa and I, uh, Dr. Janae and I are really, really proud to be co-chairing this. This is our launch event. And we thought it was incredibly important to one, explain why this intersection exists between climate change and international development, and then two, to recognize that with many of these other issues, women, women of color, and indigenous peoples are at the, in, at, at the forefront of both outsized impact of climate change, where international development, inter, you know, where international development interventions start, and yet the people who are not represented in these global conversations. And so to just give you lay of the land before we get started, and to also welcome all of you into this, we really see this as a discussion. I'm going to be moderating the questions as they come in. So if you have any questions you want either me to ask on your behalf or you'd like to ask, please go in. We're going to start with each of our different presenters with a question aimed at each, and then they'll go into discussions. And then for those of you who have questions, who have points, who want to talk about your own experiences in research and work, please do kind of send me a quick note on the side in the chat function, and then we'll kind of give you room to speak, right? So kind of without further ado, I wanted to introduce our fantastic panelists. We're so excited. We've been planning this for two months. And it's just a thrilling intersection of women who work in very different spaces, have very different experiences, and yet are going to be able to give us a multifaceted view of international development at the intersection of climate change. Um, so as I mentioned, Dr. Lisa Janae is actually my co-chair of the WCAPS Climate Change and International Development Subgroup. Yes, yeah, she's waving. And her regional expertise is Africa. We also have Carla Brolier. She's the founder and director for the Climate Justice Initiative. It's an indigenous women-led and focused organization that addresses climate change. Her regional expertise is Polar Arctic. And then we also have Sharon Bhagwan Rolls. She's the co-chair of the Global Fund. She's also waving. Global Fund for Women, Fijian-based uh, technical advisor for Shifting the Power Coalition, and her regional expertise is Pacific. So kind of without further ado, let's just go ahead and get right into it. Lisa, I was going to start with you. By way of an introduction to this group, but also around these big, very large, frequently amorphous concepts around climate change and international development, can you talk a little bit about where this intersection came from and why is this intersection so important right now? Um, and I imagine you'll have a lot of your own work around Africa to bring in, but could you start our discussion for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks so much, Dilfried. So first of all, yeah, I'll start by talking about how climate change and international develop interact. And then I'll talk about why it's a pressing issue now of all times and why focusing on indigenous and women-led strategies is such an important um, discussion. So first, climate change and international development, they're very closely 
intertwined. I don't think this is going to be a surprise for most of our audience, but there there are a number of specific ways in which they are very uh, interconnected. And it's primarily because climate change inhibits development, right? It's this obstacle standing in the way of further development. And it does this in a number of ways. So first, people in developing countries are still, for a large part, they're dependent on agriculture. This is especially true in sub-Saharan Africa. And I'll, I'll be drawing on examples from Africa a lot because that is where I've done most of my work. So uh, yes, as I said, um, many people are still dependent on agriculture for income and for survival, and climate change is making agriculture just a less viable source of livelihood. And in some places, across Sub-Saharan Africa especially, there's a lack of irrigation. So farming is largely still dependent on rainfall to make it viable. And so even slight variations in rainfall can really disrupt traditional practices of farming, practices that have been working for generations. So this means variations in both the amount of rain, more and less, really can affect traditional farming practices, uh, but also timing. So when the rainy season starts, when it ends, these all disrupt these practices that have been working for for centuries. And these all have huge consequences for for the viability of uh, farming as a source of income and livelihood. And so as farm, as agriculture and farming become less viable, in many cases, people are giving up farming. They're moving from rural areas and flocking to cities. And this is part of the reason why we see urbanization rates uh, soaring across sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere. And historically, in other times, high urbanization rates could have been an indication of industrialization, meaning that there were jobs in cities that needed to be filled. But with the with climate change, it's it's operating as this push factor, pushing people out of rural areas into cities without this corresponding pull factor, such as jobs that are bringing people into cities. So with this urbanization resulting from climate change, it's really, it's not only presenting new problems, it's exacerbating existing problems from unemployment to lack of housing and sanitation and poor infrastructure displacement and poor health, all these things are being exacerbated by uh, climate change and by urbanization specifically from climate change. Um, Because the cities don't necessarily have the jobs, the housing, are all these things needed to successfully absorb rural migrants. And in addition to rural migration and urbanization, climate change is also contributing to international migration. This brings up the question of eco-refugees or environmental refugees. And that brings about a host of questions about what this means in terms of the responsibility of, of wealthy host nations and in, in, for receiving these eco-refugees. And I'll talk in just a minute more about disproportionate responsibility between developing and developed countries. Another way that uh, climate change inhibits development is through conflict. And I've done a lot of work on com- climate change and conflict across Africa. So when you have scarce, already scarce resources like water and land, climate change can really make, vi- make viable land more, uh, more scarce. And this can in turn lead to conflict. And in some ways, this kind of conflict uh, can really not only inhibit development, can even, but can even reverse development. So we often hear climate change described as a threat multiplier for conflict. Um, and that means that it, climate change may not directly lead to conflict, but it can in- amplify the risk of conflict outbreak through a number of pathways, such as intergroup inequality and low state capacity, food insecurity, all these different things. An example of this you see in, in many countries, again, across uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria and Ethiopia and other places, when you have reduced water and reduced grazing lands, this can drive herders and pastoralists to change their migration patterns. And it could mean driving them into areas uh, traditionally uh, farmed by agriculturists, and that can lead to conflict. And con- conflict, of course, can further destroy this land, this very precious land that is being fought over. It also brings kids out of school and makes service delivery more complicated, uh, sometimes even impossible. And it just generally reduces human uh, human capital. And so this is one way, those are some ways in which conflict can really reverse development, not only inhibit it. So climate change also interacts with uh, international development by the way it affects developing countries. So first, uh, developing countries are hit hardest by climate change. And this is one of the cruelest injustices in the world today. By one estimate, uh, developing countries are hit with nearly 80% of the cost of climate change, and that's only expected to increase. And this is because, uh, first, uh, developing countries are more more vulnerable to climate change. Um, Again, this is uh, because of their dependence on agriculture, their lack of quality infrastructure, their large populations of displaced people, and even geological and physical factors can make developed countries more vulnerable. 
in some areas in, in Africa, the soil just doesn't retain water as well as some other places, for example. Developing countries also have a lower capacity to adapt, and this could range from a lack of financing options to weak political institutions needed to address and implement um, adaptation and mitigation strategies. And in another way, climate change really compounds existing crises across the world, but in developing countries especially. And a good example of this is uh, food and water insecurity, but also health and poverty and insecure livelihoods, displacement, conflict, all these other things I've mentioned. Climate change makes all those things worse while adding this other problem on top of the pile of climate change itself, right? And so it's a lot like COVID in, in this way, really. There's a strong parallel in that COVID is making other problems harder to tackle, harder to solve, while adding this additional problem of the, of the virus, of the global pandemic. And I'll, I'll talk about COVID a bit in a bit more in a minute too. So all that shows the, the disproportionality between vulnerability, how, how developing countries have been hit the hardest, but there's also this disproportional, disproportionate responsibility between wealthier nations and developing countries. So historically, climate change has been overwhelmingly caused by wealthy developed nations. That's changing a bit now. The middle income countries, China especially, uh, are some of the big contributors to climate change now. It's still a large share of the responsibility, a large share of the responsibility and who caused climate change still falls on the shoulders of developed wealth nations. And this brings up questions about what that responsibility means in real terms. For example, do wealthy nations, is it their duty now to invest in clean energy and share that technology with the rest of the world? Does it mean paying reparations? I'm not going to answer all that now, but those are just some questions that this responsibility brings up. And it's especially true when you when we remember that developing countries are hit hardest. They didn't contribute to this problem, this global problem, but they are being hit the hardest. So this idea of, of taking note of who is responsible, who's hit the hardest, this disproportionate responsibility and vulnerability is should be one of the main things that we take into account when developing strategies for adaptation and development generally. Okay, so why is this a pressing issue now? Climate change is not nothing new. Why is it a pressing issue now? First of all, it's only going to get worse. Climate change is only going to get worse, especially if we don't act in very big ways. And if we don't change some things, we need to change some of our strategies. And again, going back to COVID, uh, I think this sh should be a wake-up call. I don't know if it will be, but it should be a wake-up call. COVID is this acute example of a truly global problem. And COVID even has some similar roots to climate change with human encroachment and animal territories. That's really how new diseases spread, right? So there is some sort of, um, there's some similarities there to climate change. But COVID's really shown us how connected we are globally, for better or for worse. And importantly, COVID has also shown, shown us that prevention is so much better and so much cheaper than reacting. It really highlights the importance of uh, incorporating mitigation as well as adaptation when we're responding to climate change and to development. Okay, so why the uh, focus on indigenous and women-led approaches to adaptation? Well, the simple answer is that these groups have valuable insights, valuable knowledge to share. But as Delafruz was also saying, they're typically the underrepresented groups. When it comes to policymaking, program design, they're very underrepresented, despite all this knowledge they have to share. But beyond just the, the simple fact that they, they have value and knowledge to share, they're also the most vulnerable, most disproportionately hit. And they also that means they have the most at stake in a lot of ways. So traditional indigenous practices of farming and land use generally are sometimes the most sustainable. Yet when we look at things like the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, while admirable, of course, they do a bad job at um, indigenous knowledge and, and know-how and strategies. And so many argue that we really, we meaning Western um, donor nations, need to uh, move away from this paradigm, this, this traditional paradigm we've been using for uh, approaching development and climate change um, and do a better job at incorporating these underrepresented views. And also a lot of uh, these um, practices that have been going on for decades, they just haven't been working, you know, so it makes sense to expand our mind and look for new and different solutions and different voices. And in terms of women, uh, as I said, just developing countries are themselves disproportionately hit by climate change, but it's women in within developing countries are also themselves disproportionately hit by climate change. This is because, first of all, they have more limited access to, to financial resources, grants and credit and loans. And so they're therefore less able to invest in irrigation or drought resistant seeds or fertilizers. 
They also, women have more limited access to the labor market, meaning in some cases, farming is their only available option for employment. And so that makes them all the more vulnerable to, to climate change. And you add to that, that women tend to have fewer op opportunities for education. They may be restricted by land ownership laws. They may be overly burdened by traditional roles of being caregivers and just generally, again, underrepresented at decision-making tables. So all this shows that prioritizing women, prioritizing indigenous groups in the design and implementation of approaches to climate change and international development, it really should be fundamental. And giving them prominent roles at the decision-making table, it's, it's prominent, it should be our prominent goal, and it's, it's really necessary beyond all that. So I hope that gives a good overview. I'm now going to pass it on, open it up to our other speakers, and back to our moderator if, if they have nothing else to add. Um, thanks so much for that introduction, because I think it really helps set the scene in terms of the international uh, development agenda. But from a Pacific perspective, in terms of the work we've been doing around the women, peace and security agenda, just to take us back to 2015, where after a devastating cyclone in um, Vanuatu, we, we reaffirmed, you know, that environmental security is critical for our region. And, and we're seeing it again this year where we're having, you know, over a period of, of five years, more devastating, you know, extreme uh, weather changes during our traditional cyclone season, but also outside of the cyclone season, the impact of climate change is happening for coastal women who rely on fisheries to, to agriculture, as you said, Lisa. And then, of course, for our Pacific islands, we have 22 Pacific island countries and territories. We also rely heavily on tourism and, and women's economic security, women's economic empowerment programs or women's economic development is also linked to to that, that sector and, and the, the, the employment, the job creations, including the production of handicraft, which are not just sort of, you know, souvenirs, but also very much represent indigenous culture as well in terms of what they are. And, and you know, in a small island like Tuvalu, the encroaching sea level rises are actually affecting their sources of the pandanus to be able to even think about long-term creativity. We're, we're seeing not just the threats of relocation, as you said, Lisa, in terms of moving from one island to the next, because I know a number of Pacific Island countries are starting to think about what does adaptation look like in terms of their geographical space, but also in local communities, the internal displacement. And a number of our partners of the Global Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict and the Shifting the Power Coalition are working very closely with communities here in Fiji. Um, we've got a lot to learn from the Carteret Island work in, in Bougainville. So I guess what I'm coming around to is, you know, in 2015, we managed to get two words into UN Security Council Resolution 2242, and that was climate change. In that same year also, because of the health pandemics at the time, health, health is also seen as a security issue. So, so that's important in terms of the peace space, in terms of the role of the Security Council. And then you have the General Assembly. We've got human rights treaty obligations. You've mentioned, Lisa, you know, the sustainable development goals. So our approach right now is, is to actually, well, for, yeah, is, is to actually bring together the peace development and humanitarian nexus. And I think that really is, is a way in which, one, it challenges, which we must do, the multilateral systems, the UN systems, to say that our lives as women in our communities are not siloed according to your architecture. There's a need for, for our governments to, to see how their national, their local governance infrastructures actually bring a, you know, a, a more cohesive uh, and coherent approach to decision-making in, in terms of the impact of climate change on, on many things and many development priorities. But also at the same time, for the Pacific, we have small governments. We don't have huge state infrastructures, for example, as, as global North countries do. 
We also have systems of governance that are traditional or indigenous systems of governance. So we need to bring that nexus approach into every single stage and ultimately making sure that women are front and center and supported to be part of that decision making as well. I'll pause there. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Lisa. Sharon, I was really moved by much of what you said, but two specific things. One was that Indigenous way of life is not just about Indigenous food or Indigenous agriculture. It is the culture, the spirituality, the identity, the way you, you make these products, right? And I think that to me is such an important part of this conversation is what you lose is not just what we think tangibly, but what you lose is languages and whole ways of life, right? Um, I really appreciated that point. And then the other one is this nexus, right, of peace, humanitarian assistance and development, which um, I don't think I gave an introduction of myself at the beginning. <laughs> Apologies. My name is Dilla Fruz-Konik-Boyeva, and I'm currently at the Aga Khan Foundation in Global Leadership, but I had many years of work in humanitarian assistance before that. And I agree with you is we have very siloed ways and even the way we can give money around grants are very specific. And not only are they not conducive to indigenous ways and, and localized ways of governance and civil society, but they're not even conducive with talking to each other about how do we hand off a country from humanitarian assistance to long-term development. I thought maybe this is actually a really good way to bring in Carla's experience, Carla Brolier. I thought this would be a really good way for us to lead out on really why, um, really the why, how, what, when, and where of indigeneity, right? Like what is the role of indigenous societies and indigenous peoples, not only in frankly, um, the many unknown and now known negative effects of international development and climate change, but also as leaders in the space moving forward. Maybe by way of that, Carla, you could give us and give us an introduction to your work and really your region. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. My name is Carla Berlier. I am from the Yanitinida tribe of the Atna Athabascan people. So I was born and raised in the Arctic. And I am now the climate, the founder and director of the Climate Justice Initiative. And I've been working on climate change, human rights, peace efforts, and indigenous rights-based issues for about 15 years now. My previous career was ecotoxicology, which kind of led into this natural segue. So thanks for taking the time for joining us on this brief discussion on the intersection of climate change in Indigenous women. And uh, just to kind of outline this, as a, despite the seemingly exponential growth on a lot of the climate change literature, even on the IPCC, there is no one fixed definition of what climate change is. And to my knowledge, climate change is the only problem in human history to affect nearly every single aspect of Earth's physical biological and cultural systems, and it's happening quicker than we can all respond to. So in this ever-changing world where society must meet the challenges head on in this beautifully messy, interconnected geopolitical world of ours, we must devise new ways that we can build resilience through this evidence-based decision-making to measure, to share, and then to manage. And as we also know, risk isn't distributed evenly. So different responses to complex challenges like pandemics, which is, as you just heard, a threat multiplier and of climate change, it must be viewed in the global context of megatrends, such as urbanization, growing populations, uh, demographic shifts, environmental degradation, and technology changes. And while the world continues to respond and adapt to the pandemic crisis, the need for the global collaboration and scientific understanding to support science-based evidence decision-making and strategy planning are clear paths forward for a more resilient future, regardless of the different challenges that we face. And more specifically on the intersection of climate change and indigenous peoples, the relationship of indigenous people to the land is particularly important to uh, sovereignty and identity. Historically, traditional knowledge has been an important source of connection, understanding, and innovation, which provides ways to adjust to the conditions of nature. So I won't go too much into the details of uh, climate change itself, since we all know this pretty uh, in depth. But we know climate change is a very complex system change with undeniable and accelerating implications that's manifesting themselves into many forms on almost every single aspect of our world and life, from biodiversity to sea level rise to melting permafrost and now system transformations. And here I'd like to discuss the immediate and visible impacts on the indigenous people and specifically the impacts on indigenous women and how we can counteract some of those both um, an international and even community level. So in short, the reason that indigenous people are some of the most impacted and the first to face the dire consequences of climate change is immediate and dire dependence on and the close relationship to the environment and the natural resources. Climate change exacerbates the difficulties already faced by indigenous communities, including um, political, economic marginalization, uh, loss of land and resources, human rights violation, discrimination, 
unemployment, and all of this compounds to a lessened ability to address the negative impacts of climate change. And on a more global scale, we can view it as Indigenous people count for about 5% of the global population, and they manage about a quarter of the world's surface and protect 80% of the global remaining biodiversity. So Indigenous people manage about 30% of the intact forests and manage about a quarter of the above ground forests in tropical rainforests. And so overall, we have a lot of research on how we can view a lot of um, indigenous managed lands that show less uh, species decline, less pollution, and natural resources that are incredibly well managed. And we can see some of these examples in places like um, Australia, where they're helping with fire mitigation and things of that nature. So if we put it into more of a context of climate change with the human rights framework, we can look at it into three different layers of the uh, human rights framework. So the first layer of it being civil, political, such as like the right to life. And then the second layer we could look at is um, more economic, social, cultural, such as a right to a standard of living. And the third layer we can see as we could look at it as more of um, including collective rights, such as uh, the right to self-determination and the right to development and the right to your culture. So with that, climate is climate vulnerability per se is contextual, and it's resulting from multiple and simultaneous socioeconomic factors, including um, economic, social geographic, demographic, sexual orientation, disability, culture, ethnicity, um, social class, and impacting uh, environmental factors. Common theme of all of the international governing bodies is that they highlight that women are more deeply impacted, especially Indigenous women who are regularly underrepresented in decision-making bodies from government delegations all the way to the community level planning. So if we look at more of where I'm from, on a more local and national level from the Arctic or the circumpolar Arctic is Arctic Indigenous people who are now being deeply impacted by the effects of climate change and whose fundamental nature-based way of life is being permanently altered due to climate change, making this a crucial human rights issues. And history has shown that Indigenous people have been extremely adaptive and resilient in the past, although the current pace of the environmental and social change that's resulting from climate change is well beyond any reasonable adaptive capacity. This issue is now twice as complex because it's already undermined by social pressures, which are now um, compounded by environmental and cultural and social stressors. Not to mention, given that they're most likely to be the first and most deeply impacted, they have very little leverage at negotiating tables in comparison to major actors and emitters. And with that, they're also least likely to be beneficiaries of kind of any kind of complex climate funding mechanisms and improperly consulted during the project implementation. And all of this compounds to creating further harm. And so if we're looking at a little bit more onto the gender side of it, we can see that although climate change per se in and of itself does not drive gender inequality, it does increase the socioeconomic factors that then exacerbate gender gaps. So women in particular are vulnerable to climate change due to uh, historical inequalities, uh, dependence on sectors and resources that are set to expire or experience any kind of shifts, such as water or agriculture, and poor access to economics and social resources, such as um, financing or new technology or bargaining power, social capital, any kind of those types of or information-based spaces. And this is both in the developed and developing countries. And another reason is that there's insufficient representation and decision-making processes on climate change mitigation and adaptation. So with that, Indigenous women have experienced the impacts of climate change for generations and have been the forerunners leaders in this environmental conservation movement. And the traditional knowledge and expertise contribute greatly to building resilience and climate impacts, which also cut greenhouse gases. With, um, with the gender inequality, it threatens women's resilience to climate change and might prevent their effective engagement in existing and developing, um, further exacerbating any kind of uh, gender inequality. For instance, a lack of technology or resources affects a woman's bargaining powers at different levels within households or within communities or nationally, regionally, or internationally. So what we need to do is focus a little bit more intentionally on um, smaller aspects right now. Like, for example, what we can look at is equal pay for Indigenous women. This in and of itself might not seem like it's connected to climate change, but if Indigenous women have access to capital, they can then have social mobility, which might help them adapt and shift towards adaptation and climate change within their communities and on an international level. So when you're comparing men and women who work full-time year-round in the United States, for example. Women are paid typically 82 cents for every dollar to men. This is a well-documented wage gap, and I don't want to go too much into that, 
but to focus on women, Native specifically. Um, Native women are paid 50 cents for every dollar that a white male makes. And this wage gap uh, compounds. It might not seem like a lot of this, but this gap in pay, which typically amounts to about, uh, on average, $25,000 a year, that means a Native woman will have to work 21 months for what a single white male would work in 12 months. And so over the course of a 40-year career, this wage gap means that a typical Native woman is going to lose over a million dollars in the entire their entire working career. So this particular Native woman is going to have to work until she's over 95 years old to catch up to what a male white counterpart would work until he was at 60. So these kinds of examples make it more uh, tangible to see the ways that it's really challenging for Indigenous women, specifically into subsets around the world, to um, address some of these. And decades of colonialism and harmful policies and actions have still harmed and still impact Native American communities and Indigenous communities on a global scale. And this accelerates the loss of uh, tribal cultural traditions. And if we look at another example of um, funding mechanisms, which also helps to fuel mitigating and adapting in different ways. For instance, if you look at um, some of the philanthropy organizations, 0.04% of that goes to Native communities, and all the rest of that goes to other organizations. And of that 0.4, only 2% of that went to Native women. So this all compounds and makes it a lot more challenging for, for Native women to achieve their full potential to contribute to addressing any kind of climate change. And so climate change in the financing sector also needs to shift to be more inclusive to reach women and girls at all levels, including not only decision making, but any kind of funding mechanisms as well. Um, and I'm going to pause there before I move into any more examples of how we can actually start addressing and see if there's any other questions. Right now. Maybe if I could just pick up from Carla, who's given a fantastic example from the Arctic region and bring it down to the Pacific, where we're just surrounded by the oceans. And obviously, as I said, you know, climate change is really affecting fisheries, access to to our, our coastlines, and, and communities are already reporting changes to food sources, to the way in which they're also having to think, even in a village that may not have to relocate, but where, you know, where are they safe um, in, in terms of their housing, their, their village halls, etc. But but also, I guess, you know, in, as I listened to the points make, I, I made, I think, you know, I hope that USA will finally ratify CEDAW because, you know, as the International Convention on Women's Rights, I think this this for us has been, you know, for us as I mean in, in the Pacific, has been a way in which at the country level we can continue to hold our governments accountable. There's a specific, you know, article in terms of rural women where you can link issues in relation, particularly for us in terms of the majority of rural women are Indigenous women in their villages, as well as a women of colour because, you know, of our the the the, the presence of women from the, uh, who were, well, my great-grandmothers who came over as indentured labourers. So I think that that's one issue. I also think, you know, quite often when, when the sort of bigger international formal conversations are happening around climate change and the issue of organizing is there is that there's a very sort of global north focus on how we organize in our communities let alone how women organize and that's where i think the resourcing needs to start and this is clearly you know one of the roles of, of women's funds like global fund for women in identifying how to to support women's movement building as well and 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 that women need to be organized in our in our local communities in order to influence both the traditional governance structures but also these formal processes and and so you know we really need to make the stronger case of you know the individual versus the community and you know we have communities of women whether they're in the local markets or in the food gardens and what one of the 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 conversations I've been having for a couple of years with one of my colleagues who works at a, as a, at a regional intergovernmental organization here in the Pacific that's addressing climate change is, is the language around vulnerability and the need to unpack it. Because, you know, the more, the, the sort of traditional climate change focus has been around. Well, when we say vulnerability, it means because these communities are vulnerable to climate change. But they don't realize that the context of the word or, you know, just hearing the word vulnerability 
also suddenly says that you as women of all diversities are also vulnerable and therefore we will make decisions for you. So we're also having to really unpack this. And, and that's, you know, why we are working more and more with our faith leaders, with our traditional leaders to influence and and hold accountable our governments through their intergovernmental and UN systems. And also why we're working, you know, the need to work proactively to connect younger women to climate science, to climate information. And tomorrow, actually, I head out to the other side of our island where, because we're going to be hosting a regional hub, working with a group of young women to really connect them with climate science information. So I look forward to sharing on that further. But also this notion that the solutions also come from the global north and that when it comes to technology, for example, I'm really, you know, I, I developed Women's Weather Watch when I was still at FemLink uh, Pacific. And to be able to share that knowledge and information with my sisters in Vanuatu who have developed a platform called Women Wet and Weather and now are using it to communicate in their own local language, to share information from early warning to response, including in the health pandemic, you know, such as COVID, is just amazing. So I think we also need to be challenging those notions of of our power and and the need to to really um, hold accountable the COP gender action plan and make those linkages. Otherwise, even in those spaces where decisions are made for and about women, we're not in those spaces. I'll, I'll pause there. Thank you. Thank you, Carla. Thank you, Sharon. I'm really excited. We're kind of getting into specific examples and interventions and policies. I want to take a minute to get a question from from our many attendants. Dr. Kapila, please go ahead. Hi there. Sorry I get dibs because I'm the uh, co-chair of the Climate Change Working Group and absolutely thrilled to meet you all. My question is, let's just say if WCATS has the ear of the next incoming administration to clarify i'm referring to the biden harris administration that will be uh starting in earnest in january i my question is for all the panelists what would be that one thing you would like to tell president joe biden and vice president kamala harris about this subject area and what would you push for them to really kind of put it on their agenda. Thank you. A perfect segue into actual interventions, policies, processes. So I'll hand over to our panelists, please, whoever would like, please start. Yeah, I I would love to um, say that there are three things that I would like to see in this um, oncoming administration. First one, obviously, is going to be more focused on um, international. So I'd love to see working more on like the Paris Climate Accord. And I know that Biden had already promised that day one, that's when he's going to re-engage back in the Paris Climate Accord. So just making sure that that happens and reiterating both, you know, when you work in policy, you also need to thank um, people when they actually do decent things like that. So that's going to be a really big one too. And um, I know uh, Governor Inslee of Washington State, when he ran for president, his platform was basically on climate change. And he wasn't intending to actually win the presidency. He just wanted to put climate change on the platform. So he came up with things like the Evergreen Plan. And a lot of that takes a lot more of an equity perspective. So taking some of the pieces of that and creating a new climate plan that we could actually deal with on a more national level would be a really great place to start. So if you haven't um, looked at the Evergreen Plan, it's it's pretty comprehensive and very US-focused, clearly. And the third would be, I would say that we need to develop more a guardianship program. So there are a couple examples that we could look at, like in Canada and BC specifically, and uh, in New Zealand and Australia, they have this guardianship program. And I think they might call it 30 by 30 here, but it's a program where basically they remove the idea of co-management of all of these lands and give it to full management of Indigenous peoples so that they could re- caretake for the lands that were once theirs in the past. And all evidence shows that if you put in $1, you get in about $3 worth of um, value out of it, both by like providing jobs for Indigenous peoples, by maintaining the lands and doing things like I mentioned earlier about fire management and just everything about um, Indigenous managed lands are better than more of what the colonial managed lands have been in the past. So those would be my three recommendations that I would say. 
Uh, I can jump in next. Uh, I really just have one and it's, I think it's beautifully simple. Just giving money and resources to Indigenous women. This is probably not surprising to this audience, but research shows that when you give women money, they use it wisely. So if you target certain populations of Indigenous women who are suffering from the effects of climate change, just giving cash transfers or um, funneling other sources of resources, even if it's education or technology or whatever, I think just giving people the tools that they need, but I think they'll use it wisely and that will bring about some great solutions. And that's, I'll pass it on to Sharon now. Well, I think I've already made my point about the fact that the US really needs to to ratify CEDAW. So I really hope that they can make the push through the, you know, your your national governance structures. But but also to amplify what others have said. I think the COP process really requires I'm, some I'm really build. sorry to interrupt, Sharon. Do you mind spelling out that acronym CEDAW? Because there might be some of us here ah, okay, in sure. attendance it's, who I know yes. climate change is full of acronyms and Sure. I also just want to sneak in, I'm the biggest fan of the PG and the sure, sure. So CEDAW is the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So it's an international treaty. It's a UN international treaty that member states of the United Nations like the US need to ratify. Um, a number of our Pacific governments have. We still have a few who have not, but it really is the Women's Human Rights Treaty in terms of, you know, progressing uh, gender equality as well. And I will put the information into the chat box. I think it, it's been, you know, as I said, it's got a set of articles. There is also a UN, uh, the CEDAW committee, which gets elected by member states, but it also provides a process by which women, not only the governments go and report on the progress they are making in terms of their treaty obligations, but there's also very clear space for women from civil society, from women's rights groups to also provide uh, what is called alternate or shadow reports or just reports, you know, coming from women rather than the governments. So I, I guess my message, you know, in, in terms of the recommendations to the, the incoming president, president-elect and vice president-elect as well, yay, is, you know, one, value women's local knowledge. So, you know, really reconnect to women in the community, including networks of women across the world. We need to increase women's participation in collective action. My point earlier, you know, the community, it's not just saying anymore, okay, let's talk to one woman, you know, it, 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 it's not fair on that woman. And she brings a community together. So that's why I've been talking about a redesigned table or, or come and sit on the mat with us and talk to us. So it doesn't just have to be we go and talk to them. They should be coming and talking to us. Resourcing is key women's networks and their organizations. So uh, I'll talk a little bit uh, later about the model that we have here in the Pacific, because it also means you, you're not putting the pressure on, on a women's collective to say, okay, you know, here's a million dollars. It's not that. It's for them to know that there are resources available that can reach them as and when they need it for what they want. And so it's that flexible, responsive funding uh, that we really need so that we're able to address the intersectionalities of crises um, with, you know, in terms of our gender identities, our role in our communities, and address the issues that are really critical for us. Thank you. You can see kind of Dr. Kapila writing really fast. We have, we've dropped uh, some of those acronyms in the chat and Annette was was kind enough to drop a link as well. I think those were all so exciting. And um, I'm mentioning this because we're 10 minutes out to the end of this. We were very particular about naming this and we named this an introduction. We are only hopefully whetting your appetite. And for those of you who I imagine are already quite in the space, whether from the climate change angle the women indigenous rights angle or um, from the international development angle, we hope that you will really see us as, um, I'll, I'll get this question next, but really see us as a place where we're now convening. We're thinking about these from all aspects and we're thinking about the policy, the practice and really helping really problematize this, right? And get kind of nitty gritty. So before I go into final question to Sharon really about what are the strategies and programs right now about adapting and incorporating climate change into development? Abayate actually has a great question for, for everybody. So I'm going to leave it to the panel to decide how you all want to answer. But he asked, I'm curious how we are defining indigenous 
and native within a global context, um, how does it differ region to region? A really solid question. And so um, whoever wants to start, please go ahead. I'm happy to help answer that question though. I'd say indigenous is more of like a global context that encompasses all people and all people that are native from different areas. Uh, For example, like where I'm from, we'd say that you're native from a very specific area But if you're talking about multiple native folks, then you would say that you're indigenous as far as more of the global. But when I say that I'm native to a very specific area in the Arctic, um, that's then you just encompass other people that are native from other areas. So it's more specific and then it's more broad. I hope that that helps. That's how I use it usually in all of my um, kind of academic work and everything like that. But much like climate change, there are multiple different definitions for these things, how how different people use them. But if you hear me using them interchangeably, that's how I use them. Any thoughts from Lisa or Sharon on that before we kind of get into programs and strategies? Okay, um, I'm going to go to Sharon next. I think Carla kind of did a beautiful job of summing that up. So Sharon kind of to with seven minutes left, but you know, just no big deal. Just telling us about, you know, in terms of what are existing strategies and programs for incorporating climate change into development? I know you've kind of been talking about policies here and there, but I know you really have been leading this work in the region from a couple of different organization standpoints. So we'd love to hear kind of your regional focus. And then if we have time, getting to Lisa and Carla's specific examples, but if you could guide us into Thank that. you so much. So one of, one of the big success stories for us, I think, in terms of uh, as Pacific women working on the Women, Peace and Security agenda was when the Pacific Forum leaders, which is the major intergovernmental um, process for our Pacific Island leaders, um, adopted the Regional Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security in 2011. It was a three-year plan, never got resourced, but it was a great plan because what it did was it took the pillars of the WPS agenda and including, you know, humanitarian, including relief and recovery, because it, it, it positioned already climate change and the impact of climate change and particularly how it's affecting our region into that regional framework. So that, you know, that's something we've held on tight to and we've continued to advocate because it has been the heads of state of our, of our governments who've adopted it. We, we've then progressed in, in, you know, in seeing that the Pacific Forum leaders have also adopted uh, another declaration in 2018, which is the Bow Declaration. And that really brings uh, climate security into the bigger conversation around the development priorities for what they're referring to as, you know, the Blue Pacific. And so that's where we once again talking about the need to have this peace development humanitarian nexus approach. So that's at the political level. We can see the entry points, but we know we have to organize to be able to take those commitments to become local action, well-resourced, you know, go from the policy to practice. So the way in which we've done this is as the GPAC Pacific Network, we've joined forces with um, allies, with feminist allies to form the Shifting the Power Coalition. So that emerged in 2016, where together uh, we bring together 13 women-led organizations from six countries, together with our partners in Australia, ActionAid Australia. This is a really important feminist platform because it brings together women practitioners from local communities, Indigenous Pacific Island women, local women like myself who are working together to to say, okay, how do we move forward? It it is providing a model as a as a feminist coalition model to demonstrate also how resources can reach women in their communities. Like I said before, that modality of we need to have the, the resource pipeline, but then somebody's got to manage, you know, so we've got this modality of sharing resources, decision-making. We're also shifting the power in terms of the, the bigger space of humanitarian action. And even in around climate change, we're showing a model that can work because it's not, because Australia is quite a global north country within the Pacific community as well, but we're showing how feminist practice can work 
it brings it it brings that nexus approach. We have a very important commitment in involving young women and empowering young women. We're building succession planning as we go as women leaders. We have a strong collaboration with women of with disabilities as well, and obviously supporting allies, you know, in the feminist movement around the LGBTQI community. And we're also bringing that focus of the partnerships that a number of our uh, coalition partners use in terms of working with the faith community and traditional governance, because um, that is really important. If we're not influencing the leaders outside, you know, beyond just the women's space, we're going to just get stuck in the silo and not go anywhere. So that's the modality. I, I talked about women wet and weather as well. So we've got this South-South collaboration as well. We're reaffirming each other. We're, we're showing, you know, the constituency of women coming from the different members. And um, and like I said, I'm just really excited with this project we have with young women, which is, you know, connecting them to climate science information, traditional knowledge and Indigenous practice. And by the end of next week, they will be making some videos as well. So it'll be up on our Shifting the Power Facebook page. So, you know, it's giving voice to, to young women as well. So it's using innovative information communication technology, and it's it's reaffirming our feminist practice as Pacific women to work together to, to progress our collective agenda. I'll pause there so we can have a bit more conversation. Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to hand over to Lisa or Carla. Let's have last remarks um, from both of you, if we can, please. Thank you, Sharon. I'm going to let Carla have the last word on that. I just want to real fast say, if you want to join our subgroup on climate change and international development, uh, feel free to email me and I'll drop my email in the uh, chat box. But Carla, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I guess just on that note, there are some other ways that we could, with this last two minutes, look at ways that we can actually empower women. Since, uh, as we know, when women do well, communities do well. And when these communities do well, everybody does better. And um, some of the things that we could look at are ways that we can shift the way that we do view women in this space. So creating more ways to make more inclusive policies or creating more funding mechanisms and other things to that nature, just as um, it was mentioned earlier, hopefully we can get some things like uh, maybe some like UBI models implemented or other ways that we can actually help facilitate some shifts in this larger world. But um, I do appreciate everybody coming and being here today. And as we know, women have always been the stewards of our lands, families, and cultures. And this is a new paradigm where we need to empower and uplift our sisters and aunties. And we need to demand not only equal rights, but ability to circumvent some of these issues and have true representation and protect the protectors of our people. And so with this, we all have a beautiful opportunity to reshape our future. And we know that our communities will rise to the challenge because we've always been standing and we always will be standing. So um, thank you so much for being here with me today and for everybody else being here as well. What a beautiful ending. We always will be standing. I love that. I think that's the energy we'd like to kind of leave this conversation with today. As we mentioned, it's an introduction. Uh, Lisa has dropped her information. I've also dropped my information. If you have additional, you know, questions you'd like for Sharon or Carla or Lisa, please do feel free to write me. You have Lisa's email. Uh, we're right at time. What we're really trying to do right now, Lisa and I, is to understand what people are interested in having, whether it's more conversations like this, we're planning on doing kind of more webinars, we're planning on doing more internal closed, you know, kind of challenge house rules sessions as well, just to kind of get really nitty gritty. We're interested in kind of writing policy papers and blogs. And so please reach out. We're at the beginning of this journey. Um, and it, we're quite excited that we get to be at this intersection of it. So we hope you'll engage however you're able. Otherwise, we really thank you for your time today. And we hope you have a fantastic weekend. Thank you again to our speakers. You were so incredible kind and generous with your time. And I feel like everyone wants to ask 10 million more questions, including me. So thank you for this. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to our other speakers, too. I really appreciate it.